Hi, Ted here. So this is the first of two episodes we'll have on the Hanscom Field Expansion Project. This week we talked to the author of the report on it. Next week we'll talk to one of the activists who's trying to stop it. So, hope you enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Ted McIntyre. This show is for the week of late October, maybe not a week, but late October 2023. As of today, the global carbon dioxide level is 419.53 parts per million. That's 419.5. That is way above the 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide pollution that scientists tell us is safe. So we have some work to do. On top of that, just for your information, there are only 2,268 days left until the year 2030, by which time we have to cut our carbon dioxide pollution in half. So, time to get busy. Anyway... People who are interested in climate often know that air travel is a particularly vexing climate issue. Why is it vexing? Well, it turns out that all those flights to Beijing, across the pond, to London, whatnot, they all add up to about 2.5% of global carbon emissions. And that percentage will grow over the course of time as we cut back in carbon dioxide pollution in other places. But it's also true that aviation, jets are very hard to decarbonize. Right? Decarbonization means finding a way to use electricity to do the same thing. But with jets, it's hard to have an electric jet. So you're kind of stuck with jet fuel for the foreseeable future. They're hard to decarbonize. They're a significant part of the global carbon pollution. But one of the interesting questions as it relates to aviation is that it is also an example of inequity, inequality throughout the world, right? In the sense that most people, you think, you know, someone living in rural China is probably never going to see the inside of an airplane, right? There are millions of people that are never going to fly. And conversely, there's lots of people, There's a, I got a statistic that said in the, in the United Kingdom, 70% of the flights are by the top 15% of the population uh, in terms of income-wise, right? So flying is really a privilege that is accorded to certain lucky people on the planet. And that flying is pretty destructive. Lots and lots of carbon dioxide is emitted as you jet from place to place, right? And of course, in America, we all consider ourselves a almost a birthright to be able to fly any place we want, anytime we want, right? Americans are privileged in the sense that we think we can, and we do, fly a lot. A lot of Americans fly. But it turns out that the thing we're going to talk about tonight is a little bit of a taste of the inequity and the inequality that pervades the world uh, as far as aviation goes. Because, um, for those of you who have seen Succession, Know that Logan Roy liked to jet around in his private jet, right? Him and a few friends zooming off someplace new every week. That is, these 
private jets are essentially toys of the rich, right? And they can be quite environmentally harmful, right? Essentially dirty from a carbon perspective. But rich people get to fly them around. So we have this instance where most Americans have the privilege to fly compared to most other people in the world. But then we turn around and see that there are some smaller set of people who get to be even more carbon polluting than the average person, right? And those are the people with private jets. All this comes to a head now here in Massachusetts. And it's interesting because here in Massachusetts, up on Route 128, there is what used to be a Air Force, military Air Force field called Hanscom Field, Hanscom Air Force Base, Hanscom Air Force Base, if you're, you're old enough to remember that. Right. Hanscom Air Force Base was decommissioned oh God, sometime in the 70s, turned over back to the town of Hanscom and became a private airfield. Okay, So now it's a private airfield. And in and out of that private airfield fly lots and lots of private jets making lots and lots of pollution. And the organization here in Massachusetts called the uh, Mass... Oh, God, what's it called? Uh, the, the, the people here in Massachusetts have made a proposal to triple triple the hangar space, that is, say, storage for private jets at Hanscom Field just outside of Boston. Okay. And that is a bad thing for the climate because all those new jets are going to be polluting quite badly, even compared to regular jets. And of course, mind-numbingly more than taking a bus, right? So recently there have been protests where demands that Governor Healy, uh, who is a claims to be a climate champion, should intervene and essentially deny the permits for this expansion, expansion of hangar space at Hanscom Field. Okay, but it's all, it's all, um, it's all up in the air right now. And because of that confusion, we are thrilled to have with us tonight someone who has thought a lot about this issue, has recently written a report or co-authored a report about private jets going in and out of Hanscom Field. And so I am pleased to welcome with us Chuck Collins, who is the director of, of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-authored a, uh, a report with Omar Ocampo, Kalina Tomhav as Jiquin Wu. So, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ted. So, so I gave my usual long-winded setup as to what we want to talk about. Did I get it more or less right? And uh, what is your take on what's happening at Hanscom Field now? What should people know about it? Yeah. Well, excellent setup. Um, the, the What I think all of us should know is, uh, you know, Hanscom Field uh, is is owned and operated by Massport, uh, which also owns Logan Airport and Worcester Airport, and obviously the port facilities in Boston. So they're a public agency, but they're entertaining a proposal from a private developer to triple the hangar capacity and the capa the private jet capacity at Hanscom Field, and um, it's not a done deal at all. Mm -hmm. And as you say, the governor has a has some some power in this. Uh, most of us have no power, the legislature and the citizens and the communities where the airport resides have, have really very little say. Um, but the governor and Massport obviously have the power. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me what's, what's the, 
what if you could store three times as many Lear jets at Hanscom Field? I mean, who cares? Why? Why does that matter? Well, it basically will, would increase the traffic, uh, the private jet capacity. Uh, Hanscom Field is already the biggest private jet airport in New England. Um, there are private jets that fly in and out of Logan, but Logan is maxed out, and Logan um, doesn't want any more private jet activities. They want to basically commit to, you know, sort of serving the commercial flying public. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is this is probably where the growth is going to happen. Um, and the context I would say is one: private jets are kind of a symptom of extreme inequality, which is kind of what you were in your introduction sort of saying, but, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we've over 30, 40 years seen this extraordinary concentration of wealth and power, you know, 1983, there were 15 billionaires. Now there's like 750. And uh, just like in succession, they all want to have their jets and maybe they want to have two or three. uh, So their kids and friends can fly around too. But what we know is private jets burn way more emissions, you know, probably 20 times the emissions of uh, ordinary commercial passengers. And uh, so so part of what we were interested in is, well, how is the airport currently being used? Um, there are already, you know, in 2022, 36,000 private jet operations, you know, arrivals and departures from Hanscom. Who's using Hanscom and how are they using it? So you, and, just let me, I'm doing the math. I mean, 36, 36,000 flights, right? There's three, roughly 360 days in a year, right? Does that mean there's there's 100 flights in and out of either landings or, take, I suppose, 50 cycles landing and a takeoff at Hanscom every day? That's yeah, astounding. Easily. easily. And, that, and, of course, there's other cargo and other, mm-hmm. um, you know, shuttles and things like that, but. Um, and yeah, we, we, we did an analysis, basically, we looked at a year and a half of flight data in and out of Hanscom. Uh, there were 2,900 separate jets that went to 760 different destinations. So there's quite a, you know, quite a bit of activity there. Let me just, just keep up with you. You just said 2,900 Different, different Lear jets, right? Yeah, With different, different numbers landing and taking off. Right? They're not all yep. Lear jets, but I mean, they're all these sort of private, small jets. 2,900 different. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, and these are not your little Cessna prop planes or uh, crop dusters or, you know, these are jet jets. They, mm-hmm. they, they're powered by jet fuel and uh, they're either owned by private individuals, corporations, or sometimes what they call fractional ownership, kind of like a a timeshare condo for jets. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you and I and 10 other guys own a jet. So, um, and, and, and what we, uh, just real quick, what we found is uh, half of those flights go to, I would call them kind of recreational luxury travel destinations. Uh, they would like us to think, well, this is all, you know, commerce and business aviation. Turns out after, you know, even with the pandemic, more and more people are realizing they don't need to travel for work, but they do want to travel for uh, recreational purposes. So a huge percent of these flights are for luxury travel. And, you know, 41% of them are less than an hour and uh, 14% are less than a half an hour. 
So, so we did, we actually invested a lot of resources to purchase the, 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 the data from these private vendors to analyze, well, where are they going here? Well, guess what? They're going to Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, the Hamptons, really? West Palm Beach, Jackson Hole, Aspen, Tortola, Aruba, Bermuda, Bahamas, you know, down the list. These are, you know, some of them are going to New York, Teterboro Airport. Well, hey, there are other really good transportation options if you want to go to New York City from Boston. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You take the train. There's first class luxury train service. Uh, there are other That's, options. So, I mean, I was, so, I was just going to say, where can you go in a jet in 30 minutes? <laughs> there's got to be Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket, right? You can't, it's like a 30 minute jet flight. Wow. So, so these guys are just going from Route 128 down to Martha's Vineyard for the weekend and presumably come back on Sunday, right? Yeah, yeah. We we actually looked at who were the top 20 most frequent flyers in and out of Hanscom. Mm -hmm. Turns out there's, you know, 20 planes that account for about 10% of all the flights in and out of Hanscom, 14% uh, of all the emissions. The number one jet out of Hanscom is owned by a private equity firm, Charles Bank Partners, which as an aside is a huge investor in fossil fuel gas pipeline and tar sands projects. Mm -hmm. They flew 387 flights in an 18 month period, 112 of them to Nantucket, 110 to New York, Teterboro. So those are, that's a great example. Here's a frequent flyer. Well, you can take the ferry to mm -hmm. Nantucket and you can take a train to New York. You have other transit options particularly here in the Northeast. Um, oh, yeah. So to me, when we talk about, well, if we're going to triple the private jet capacity, if it mirrors uh, or reflects the current use, we're basically talking about setting off a carbon bomb of emissions, you know, uh, tens of thousands of tons of carbon emissions so that the ultra-rich, the, the richest 0.001% or whatever, can fly to Nantucket as opposed to take a ferry. It just seems like not the, an appropriate the, use on a warming planet. The Yes. So number one, that certainly makes sense. But I guess the other aspect of it, I mean, what's your comment on the idea that, you know, this is a public mass port is a state of Massachusetts organization. Right? And so they are the ones that are sort of condoning. Are they putting any money into the construction of this, um, this facility that serves only these uh, extremely, extremely wealthy guys that want to fly jets. I mean, how does that work? Well, it turns out they probably wouldn't put. I mean, they've they've done some infrastructure improvements, but Massport wouldn't. Yeah, okay. Massport is really uh, kind of like the vendor here. They, mm -hmm. the, you know, licensing a private private firm to build and or operate this capacity. But Massport is an interesting agency. I mean, it is a public agency. Um, it has a citizens advisory council representing all the communities they serve. Um, they actually have a plan, like like a lot of state agencies, to achieve net zero by 2031 mm -hmm. in every in their buildings and operations, but not in terms of aviation. That's like off the table. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Massport. I mean, think about it. It's an agency formed in the 1950s on this sort of premise of unlimited aviation growth. 
And that's how they operate. That's kind of like their North Star. We're just going to keep, you know, they, they're they just assuming aviation and private jets and commercial flights are just going to keep growing, growing, growing as it has over the last three years. Um, and and uh, as Senator Mike Barrett, who represents the district where Hanscom is, mm-hmm. says, you know, uh, we've got a different paradigm now. You know, uh, they Massport should not squander its public reputation on a project that's really about serving uh, the the indefensible luxury needs of the ultra rich. I mean, that's a fascinating question because I mean, one is I'd like you to talk about who counts the carbon dioxide emissions from a from aviation, right? That's already a big question. But another question is where does the the emissions from these jets fit into the Massachusetts roadmap, right? And then the question of Massport being in some sense immune from public pressure by design, right? It, it, there's, you can't vote those people in or out. And how does the state work in order to meet the roadmap that we have as a state, how do we align all these different agencies to the same goal? Right. I mean, so that's like a multi-pronged question. Let me go, go back to the first briefly. How is it, how are emissions from aviation accounted for? They're not accounted. They're not in the, they're not in the equation. And uh, actually Neil Rasmussen, who's a terrific researcher who lives in the Metro West area sort of points out that, uh, tripling the private jet capacity, the, the increase in emissions would essentially cancel out almost all the roadmap uh, save, savings from solar energy in the state of Massachusetts over the next 10 years. So it's it's sort of like um, a disconnect between the state's professed goals and, you know, the essentially the impact of, of this quote, tripling of, of private jet activity. And from what I hear you saying, I think is that we would, the state would pat itself on the back for meeting its roadmap goals in the year 2030, while at the same time having allowed these jets to essentially cancel out all the gains that were made. Yeah. That's a fair statement. Maybe it's like you you and I ride our bikes uh, 350 days of the year, and then five days of the year we we take planes, the other five, you know, we, we basically say, well, we're not going to really count that. We're really trying to be green here, but we're not going to count those flights. Yeah. yeah. That's essentially the plan. Yeah. Fascinating. So tell me why, you know, I think it's, you mentioned in the report that these jets are particularly, um, I guess what the word is, I keep using the word dirty, but they give out a lot of carbon because the flights are so short. Right, they never quite get to cruising altitude where they can go a long way efficiently. They kind of get up in the air and then they have to start descending again to get to Martha's Vineyard. Is that is that true? Well, How does that um, work? yeah, I mean, just like a rocket, uh, pri- uh, any a- aviation uses uh, a high percentage of its fuel on takeoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- to be honest, there's a lot of long flights out of Hanscom too. There's a lot of people going to Barcelona or. Uh, Germany or London or you know Jackson mm-hmm, Hole, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so there 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 are longer hop flights, um, but you're right. The short hop flights are particularly um, inefficient from a carbon emissions point of view. So, and in fact, you know, you you hear about other countries in Europe saying, well, maybe we should 
you know, they should ban short hop flights. That's mm-hmm. actually on the table in the European aviation discussion. And again, they have a much, they at least have transit alternatives. They have better superior rail system. So you could actually say, yeah, you don't, you don't need to go from, you know, uh, Paris to South of France on a jet. You can take the TGV 220 mile an hour fast train, you know, and be there in two hours. So, so yeah, we have a problem here, which is we've, thanks to the fossil fuel industry and the lobbying against public transit, we, we don't have a really good alternative. Mm-hmm. We've, we've kind of like, um, and you can understand why, why any rich person or any person aspires to have a private jet. I mean, to the extent you fly commercial, you realize it's, it's more and more of a crowded, mm-hmm. degrading, dehumanizing experience. So private jet fantasies, uh, uh, cut across all, all cultures, <laughs> you know, a lot of people watch succession as you said ted and and dream of being in a private jet and you can understand why <laughs> well it's funny though that i talked with someone one time who said that uh we're talking about the uh building a east west rail link to springfield and how that would be difficult and would take a long time but you could in contrast buy electric buses and have an electric bus leave South Station to drive to Springfield on a dedicated uh, Mass Pike lane. And inside the electric bus, you could have a reclining seat and be served by by a waiter for the three hours it took you to get there. And that that's a solution. So I, I guess what I'm thinking is, you know, if someone has a, all this money, they could have a very nice ride down to, uh, to uh, New York City on a bus and have much lower carbon output than taking a jet to Teterboro. Anyway. I, I mean, I think it's an interesting thought experiment is if if the richest and most powerful people in our society had to depend on grounded transit options, uh, we would have a much better system. You know, the, the fact that the rich can opt out, not just take their money, but their political clout out of the equation means we're all stuck in an inferior uh, public transit system. So, uh, a, one one good argument for uh, tamping down or discouraging private jet travel is uh, the most powerful people in our society would have a stake in a better system for the rest of us. That's a fascinating point. And it's probably not probably. I I think it would be true. Yeah. I mean, if if I've often thought if every state legislator had to ride the T into Boston to go to the state house. The tea would get much better very quickly, right? Very same, quickly, amen. Same, yeah. same is true that if if uh, Logan Roy had to fly commercial, that that jet would improve pretty fast. And I suppose that applies to a lot of things, right? Like a lot of, and that's a in a sense a general argument for uh, taxing the rich in a sense, or or expecting people with a lot of money to behave like humans, like the rest of us, because it makes the world better for everyone else. Yeah. I mean, it does go back to this, you know, this is a symptom of extreme inequality. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the fact that the ultra rich are kind of de-linking from the rest of society, taking their money and power and going, you know, leaving behind uh, the rest of society is kind of why we're in the pickle we're in. In so many areas, I take public education or uh, recreation or, you know, you name it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there's so many. Let me let me send this in a slightly different direction. Uh, 
Can you tell me or recount the argument that Massport makes would make in favor of tripling the hangar space? Yeah, one of their arguments is that um, there's a lot of uh, flights in and out of Hanscom are what they call ferrying flights. They're dropping off a passenger, picking up a passenger, but because they don't have hangar space, they don't have parking, they have to pop over to uh, Pease in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or Worcester, or New Haven. And so if you expand the, uh, they, they, they actually make an even more far-fetched argument, you expand the hangar capacity at Hanscom, it will reduce emissions because you'll have fewer of these really inefficient ferrying flights. Mm-hmm. Now, now, as I said, there are 14% of the flights that are under 30 minutes, which would, you know, some of those are ferrying flights. We actually know. I mean, just know, moving the airplane around. Getting just the going somewhere where it's, we can sit. It's like off offsite parking at Logan, but having to go right. to you know okay. Chelsea instead of Eastie. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the um, and there's there you know there is some of that, but it's nowhere near. And you know we're doing a whole there's a bunch of research just on this question of ferrying flights, and you need a much bigger data sample because you need to sort of look at where the planes come from and mm-hmm. how quickly they leave Hanscom. Uh, but we know, for instance, uh, Arthur S. Demoulis, that, that name may be familiar to you from the market basket days. Yes. Arthur S. was the, uh, I guess he was kind of the villain. He was trying to oust his cousin, Arthur T. Demoulis, um, and he lost that fight. And Arthur T. Demoulis, you know, oversees market basket. And Arthur S. took his billion and bought a jet. And, you know, you see his flights go from Hanscom to Nashua. Now, of course, that's... That's a fairing flight. That's an example where, you know, Arthur uh, S. gets off at Hanscom, but his plane is parked in Nashua. So it's a, it, there are a few of those, but it's, but it's. Uh, so it's basically the ferry, if you give me a check, the ferrying thing is just storage, storage space, right? They got a, the, the, the passenger wants to get to Hanscom, but there's no place to park the, park the plane. So they got to fly somewhere else. And that's the, the parking problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you get dropped at Logan and then your plane goes to Hanscom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that mm-hmm. explains why would a flight go from Logan to Hanscom? Um, so that's a real thing, but it's not a justification uh, and I think our data will show, I mean, we, we already found out, you know, half, half those 30 minute or less flights are to Nantucket. You're not taking a fairing flight to Nantucket. There's not like surplus jet right. parking right. there or the Hamptons or Martha's Vineyard or, you know, uh, Bangor or Portland or wherever. I have the toughest so, time parking my jet in Martha's Vineyard when I take it down there on weekends. You know, it's just it's no crowded. It's, it's crowded. It's just exactly, too exactly. If that's the problem, you get it. Well, tell me, tell me this. What is the um, you have in your report talked to, uh, very specifically about the people who own the planes. You can explain ownership is a little bit murky, but the people who, who basically own and use the planes and where they come from and what they're doing with them, why is it important for people who might think the hangar stuff is a bad idea, right? That the expansion of the hangars is a bad idea. Why is it important for them to know the details of who owns the planes and what they're doing with it? Well, I think that that's a, there's a human interest story here. I mean, who who are the neighbors? Who do we know who is flying in and out of Hanscom? 
And and here's a really important side note, uh, and it's a whole other issue, which is there are um, wealthy private jet owners who ask the FAA to have their information removed from the public private jet tracking registry. So one of the things we learned doing this report is there's a huge number of flights that don't even show up in our data. For instance, we we you know we happen to know there's probably eight billionaires in Eastern Mass who have private jets, but several of them, Bob Kraft, John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox and the Boston Globe, Paul Fireman from New Balance, Jim Davis, Reebok, these are all multi-billionaires who have jets, but we don't have their data. And we know that they're coming in and out of Hanscom, but we don't have that information. So there's a like a missing billionaire problem, or our report basically understates Mm-hmm. the amount of private jet excess that there is. So uh, as an aside, we're working on an issue to kind of roll back the secrecy provisions so that communities can know who are who's really using these jets. Um, but it's our basically report, since that's all a public thing, right? It, it's all, I mean, yeah, it's like, uh, you mean the, the, our taxpayer dollars are funding this whole thing and the, and certain people get to opt out because they don't want to be, they don't want to be followed. Right. Is that a fair statement? That's right. I mean, and, and, and what, what we've learned is it's, I, I, I mean, I call it the embarrassment reduction act, you know, <laughs> amendment, you know, cause it, there's a lot of embarrassment. People are realizing like, whoa, uh, I don't want, you know, Taylor Swift. There's a reason why she puts an umbrella over her head now when she gets off her jet, because she doesn't want to be photographed mm-hmm. getting off her private jet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of years ago, the big three automakers, they all flew to in their private jets to lobby Obama on the auto bailout. Well, that was a big optics problem. And there's a hundred examples of that. Right, right. And, uh, you know, f- what was interesting in our report is, well, we actually, you know, Herb Chambers and... Uh, John Fish from Suffolk Construction and Arthur S. DeMoulis and, you know, John Childs, all these people, you, you can trace their jets. Uh, three of the 20 top jets are owned by this private equity firm, Charles Bank Partners. So we could kind of work our way through the the the, the layers of uh, shell companies and LLCs and that sort of thing to track, kind of figure out who really is the beneficial user of this jet. Mm -hmm. Um, But even those folks, you know, now that we've embarrassed them, now they're going to go and ask to have their names removed from the FAA registry. So that's, you know, that, but, you know, it, it helps us understand, you know, okay, well, some of these folks, uh, John Childs is just flying his jet to Vero beach because he has a a house there, you know, and he has a hunting lodge in Rosario, Argentina, where he likes to go bird hunting. So we can see the behavior of people and, and the public can say, well, is this really a good use of, uh, of Massport? Is this a Massport priority here? Don't we have some other infrastructure priorities right now other than this? So, so tell me, if, if someone was listening to this and they uh, have a sense of outrage uh, about the, uh, what's going on, what can they do? I mean, what, what's the sort of game plan for preventing this? Well, I, there's a great coalition, and you know, really, the most important thing your listeners can do is go to the website stopprivatejetexpansion.org, 
And there's a petition to the governor, but even more important, call the governor, send the governor a letter saying, don't expand Hanscom. And the coalition is actually called Stop Private Jet Expansion at Hanscom or anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important because we don't want to shift the pressure onto Logan. We don't want it to go anywhere. Just like we shouldn't be building new fossil fuel infrastructure for gas, oil, and coal, we shouldn't be building new private jet infrastructure. Uh, you know, those days are gone. Mm -hmm. uh, after mm -hmm. the summer we've had, after the clear disruptions, uh, climate disruptions we're facing, it is time to dial back aviation overall, starting with private jets. They're really the lowest hanging fruit. Right. They're the right. Right. they're the most indefensible. And actually, Warren Buffett, I love this. He he nicknamed his jet the indefensible. <laughs> and I'd like to say, <laughs> well, any private jet is indefensible on a warming right. on a warming planet. And we can talk about larger aviation, but we this is the starting point. You know, we're not asking Joe Q Public or Jane Q Public to give up something. We we shouldn't. People shouldn't have to. You know, we 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 all need to do. We all need to take action to dial back our emissions, but we shouldn't be asking people to make huge sacrifices until the ultra wealthy give up some of their luxury perks, like private jets. Interesting. So the, wow. So I mean, the, if you're a listener, but, you know, contacting the governor saying you don't like this, Chuck, there were other recommendations in your report. Were, were there other things that you think that, I mean, you just sort of hinted at something that I would, I'll say out loud is that we are just ought to stop making private jets, right? But what, yeah. are there other recommendations in your report that, uh, that people should know about? Well, I think generally, private jets should pay the real costs of this luxury travel. And not just the environmental costs, which is what we're focusing on, but the reality is they also don't really pay their share of airspace costs. Uh, private aviation is about 6% or 16% of all air traffic, but only chips in about 2% of the cost of maintaining the air traffic system. Um, they get huge subsidies. The 2017 uh, Trump tax cut uh, provided accelerated depreciation, so mm -hmm. it in encourages investment in private jets. And in Massachusetts, uh, uh, aviation jets have um, a sales tax exemption and a fuel tax exemption. So, okay, Ted, if you go and buy a new bicycle, you're going to pay a sales tax on that. Right. If you buy a car, you're going to pay a sales tax on it. But if you buy a plane, you're not going to pay a sales tax. That's amazing. So, and just to understand that the private jet lobby, the the Massachusetts Business Aviation Association and their national partners, the National Business Aviation Association, is a powerful lobbying force, and they have gotten their way with, and they've gotten their way with Massport. Here's a here's an interesting little side thing. Uh, we released our report. We gave it to a very, very good reporter at the Boston Globe. He said, well, I have to share this with Massport. And we're like, okay, share it with Massport. And immediately, the Massport uh, spokesperson sends back a memo from the National Business Aviation Association, from the lobbyists, with their talking points. Really? And I'm kind of like, okay. I mean, unfiltered. A little, a little cozy here. A little cozy. <laughs> um, they all 
you know, party together. They go to the same conventions and conferences and they go out for drinks, you know, that they're a cohort and there's a revolving door between Massport and the private jet lobby. So it's not surprising that they lobby for a sales tax exemption and they'll say, we're job creators. We're a huge Mm -hmm. engine of the economy. We employ all these people. People take these jets in rural areas. We we keep the rural economy, you know, and of course, if you look at all private aviation, including small rural airports and people with crop dusters and you know people with um, you know emergency medical air flights and all this stuff, you know there's there's some justification for publicly subsidizing private aviation that isn't all commercial, but that's the fig leaf they hide behind, mm-hmm. and what they really represent are these wealthy high flyers that's that's who they they really carry the water for fascinating so let, let me bring this full circle chuck and just uh, i started out saying that most of the people in the world are never going to see the inside of an airplane right we in the united states most people in the united states will see the inside of an airplane but yet recognize the inequality when they look up Question is, do they recognize the inequality when we look down? Not, you know, not sort of metaphorically, right? We see the inequality of the crafts, you know, craft and John Henry flying around in a jet and say, hey, stop that. What, what lesson should climate activists take from this inequality you've uncovered vis-a-vis the whole planet? Right? I mean, this plays out on a bunch of different levels. What would you say to that as a response to how, to, how should people think about this? Yeah. Well, I, I know personally, I think that from a, the perspective of the global South, the people who uh, you know, burn the least emissions and actually suffer the greatest consequences of climate disruption in this moment, uh, that, that I am I'm a, like a private jet traveler. I have my own private jet in a car which is the, the, the liberty of being able to go places whenever I want, um, the privilege, if you will. Um, so I think there is a corollary that, that should be humbling for any of us who start you know, looking up at the private jets and, and saying, oh. At the same time, I do think because of the grotesque inequalities in our society that the fossil fuel industry, the private jet aviation industry, are drivers of the you know runaway emissions uh, and block alternatives use their considerable power to you know i would love to take a high-speed rail train uh around the u.s i'd love to take that commuter bus you were describing that's going to barrel down that dedicated lane in an in an electric bus um powered up with solar panels but i don't have that option and why don't I have that option? Because the fossil fuel industry and the private jet lobby and other public, powerful public uh, lobbying groups, private lobbying groups, I should say, have ruled out options for me, have blocked, have used their power to block alternatives. So uh, I think it is important for all of us to take responsibility, those of us in the global north who have a sort of middle class or affluent standard of living. We need to dial back our own emissions. I mean, and I, I sure fly a heck of a lot less than I did five years ago because of my understanding 
of the impact of aviation on emissions. And I've changed all kinds of personal practices. Mm -hmm. At the Mm -hmm. same time, this is, we need to shift the system uh, and these systemic drivers. And that's why stopping new private jet infrastructure is kind of a really good first step. Because you're really talking about inconveniencing the richest people in the world who have plenty of other options. Um, Whereas we're going to have to make some tougher choices down the road. And it's going to be hard to win over public support for other transitions we need to make when the richest people in the planet are laughing all the way to Aruba on their private jet. That's, I, uh, that is a great answer. <laughs> well, I, I, Chuck, I think we should, uh, we should stop here, although this has been a fascinating discussion, really a very interesting. I appreciate all the, uh, the effort that you've put into collecting this data because I'm sure it's very, it's very specific and highly technical kind of work, but it gives us a, uh, a sense of what's really going on. What I will do is I'll put in links, uh, to your report, some of the press that has been generated by this, uh, and uh, what in, in that um, particularly we'll put in, I think it was called Stop Private Jet Expansion. We'll have that link in there. That's where the action uh, things you can do would be located. Um, we'll put that stuff live on the blog at Mass Climate Action, the Mass Climate Action website. You have to go in. We're hidden in a little side alley underneath the uh, newsletter kind of thing, but you can find us. You're, you're all savvy listeners. If you have any questions about the show or comments, please send us a, a note, an email to podcast at massclimateaction.net. Let us know what you think about um, everything. Uh, of course, you're probably listening to the show on your smartphone using one of the modern podcast distribution apps. Please ask your friends to listen to us on their modern podcast distribution apps. I want to thank our good friend Dr. Tucker for his continuing research support. Dr. It's great stuff you send us. And we'll close the way we always close by saying that we recognize the necessity of personal accountability for our actions, that we accept responsibility for building a durable future, that we believe it's our patriotic duty as citizens to speak out. Because of that, we have to insist that the United States transform its energy sector over the next decade under a just and equitable plan that uses regulation, investment, and a price on carbon that respects environmental justice communities. So, Chuck, thanks for all of your work and taking the time to chat. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Ted. Great talking to you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Very cool.